There's no one that's female. I mean, why in the hell would I think that I can be successful? Women are not making it to the top of any profession. So it's a very male-dominated environment. We do exist in this society where women in entertainment are discarded. There are women over 40 making pop music, but you won't hear them on commercial radio. And this is why conversation between women and music has never been more important. Hi, Chelsea Wilson here. Welcome to Control, the podcast where we speak to wildly inspiring change makers and game changers in the creative industries. In this episode, I'm speaking to leading music industry practitioner, author, and academic Sally Ann Gross. An artist manager, record label director, and international business affairs consultant, Sally Ann has over three decades' experience working in music. An industry pioneer, she became the first woman to be an A&R manager at Mercury Records UK in the early 90s and chaired the first ever panel on gender in the music industries at In The City Music Conference in Manchester. In 2016, she founded Let's Change the Record, a project that focuses on bridging the gender divide in music production. In her current role at the University of Westminster, she's the Program Director of the Master of Music Business Management degree, and in 2020, she released Can Music Make You Sick, a groundbreaking book investigating mental health issues in the music industry. This is Sally Ann Gross in Control. Sally, welcome to the Control Podcast. So excited to chat with you. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be here. <laughs> it's really nice of you to invite me. I firstly wanted to say a huge congratulations on your book, Can Music Make You Sick?, which you co-authored with George Musgrave. It's an incredible piece of work. The subtitle on the cover says the book is Measuring the Price of Musical Ambition. But I feel like it's so much more than that because the book talks about the industry through the lens of the artist, but it also comments on how society values music and creatives. It discusses the abundance of music, democratization of the music industry. You touch on the education sector, gender imbalance, power structures, mental health. I mean, it's huge and there's so much in there. Something early on in the book that I'd love to touch on firstly, can you talk to us about the common perception that creativity and madness are related and how that affects attitudes towards musicians. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a big one because it, it stays with us. There is a kind of permanent connection, I think, within the imagination. So certainly in North, the Northern Hemisphere imagination, particularly in the West where we have a tradition of separating the mind and body, that any experiences that are in some ways evoking both things you know they're sensational and they're affective they're about our inner experiences when any people go there in in the west or certainly in a judeo-christian position that evokes this there's been this connection to madness i mean if we if we look at that historically and anthropologically we can see that actually even, you know, I was saying this to someone just the other day, if you think about shaman or the roles of religious skeptics or prophets in the days, you know, these were people going around. But nowadays we might be saying, oh, they're hearing voices, they're schizophrenic. You know, we might have been saying that. But in those days, people that were saying things like that were assumed to be quite often channeling either evil spirits or good spirits and so it's actually, once you start to think about it that way, it's much easier to understand how people that deal with inner worlds and emotional communications or touch on things in song and melody can become uh, associated with those things, you know? I think that there's a real crossover between that, that kind of um, emoting or communicating from inner worlds inside you and how that meshes with ideas of insanity. You know, and I mean, nobody knew that word, you know, sanity or insanity is not, they're not used anymore. They're not helpful. They never were helpful contexts because they, you always have to, if someone says someone's insane, you have to ask who's saying that, right? 
I, I think today or, you know, this week, it's very poignant, isn't it? You see the behavior of someone like Putin and you're like, oh, OK, let, let's let's have a look at what, you know, what's triggering him? How how mentally stable is that person? So I think that with music, it's stuck as an idea. You know, it's a, it's an idea that has created a kind of pathway or it's stuck and it's and it's difficult to shift. So when you meet musicians or musicians, when you hear them sing, whatever, people talk about their emotion, you know, how emotional it is. But the degrees and the way in which we manage or mobilize our emotions are very, very connected to a diagnosis of mental health. Because in a scientific world, we should all be rational. And the idea of rationality is in itself a rejection of the idea of emotion, right? And again, that is simply philosophically a mind-body split. You can just take it back historically. If you contextualize these things, I think they become very clear. And all the reading that I've been doing pretty much all my life, because in, in a sense, from an early teenager, I was always, I was very interested in feminism. I was very interested in how many women got, how mental illness seemed to be in women, you know, like so many more women are mentally ill. And I was like, really? Like such a weird idea, you know, uh, why would women be mentally ill? Um, and then you, you know, you, you put the race lens to that or you add in the race lens in an intersectional way and you just see those numbers go up, you know, and, and really that's only got worse, not better, you know, so we might not use sanity, as a, as a marker, and we might talk about people being on spectrums of mental health, but if we look at it from an infrastructural sense, we can see how race, gender, sexuality really impact people's mental health diagnosis. And you put that in a music sphere where the spotlight is on individual characteristics and you get this very kind of stereotypical, the artist is, you know, overly emotional or a bit unstable or, you know, and I even one of my favorite sort of lyric, you know, it's the odd poetic phrase that it's it's those that are cracked that the light shines through. It's just a really romantic idea, isn't it? Yes, it's ro it's this sort of romantic idea that there's this, you know, crazed person with fluffy hair and they're sort of eating cat food out of a tin and they're the genius that wrote these amazing pieces. Yes, I, I yes, I think there's that, you know, that that romantic trope. But I think there's also another another space in which there is a potential to understand that as having some resonance for lived experience is that when people are in crisis, in mental crises, or, you know, even when people like, if you've ever had that experience, I, you know, I have several very, you know, good friends that have been diagnosed as having paranoid schizophrenia. They don't use that term anymore, but, you know, 10 years ago, they'd say that someone was paranoid schizophrenic. But all of those people, whenever I've spoken to them, the thing that's niggling them, the thing that's bringing those voices up is actually a real thing in real life. It's just like, it's got very difficult for them to deal with and it's got out of control. And, you know, I think the idea that when you speak to people who are having mental health crisis, that nothing about what they say bears nothing to reality is also not, you know, so I think that there's a thing that we... You know, we have to be, on the one hand, absolutely the romantic trope of the artist as mad. And also that's very containable. Oh, they're mad. But actually, when you start to experience different mental health crises with people that are working in artistic settings and you talk to people about their diagnosis, what they were told they had, I think then you hear things and you can observe things whereby what those people are finding really, really difficult is often the reality of their lives when faced with, you know, that you know, that kind of idea, you just can't take it anymore. And I think that resonates with people. I think people in, um, you know, in different communities in different positions go, oh, yeah, I know how that feels, you know. So I think, I think that romantic artist idea or the you know, emotions out of control or things that people can't deal with. I think most people recognize that as having some truth. Most people, you know, most people know what it's like to lose your temper 
or to feel really out of control. So I think that some of these things stick because they have they have a resonance to them. I think when you work in an industry that's so hyper competitive, like the music industry, and you know there are those moments when real chance just intersects with planning and strategy and things just go very well for someone or something just takes off or doesn't and then everyone mm. around you're like whoa and it, and it does seem like magic you know like sometimes yeah. I was like that's the only explanation <laughs> there's other explanations so that I think that this idea that we live somehow in a totally rational world all the time and you know we get up every morning and it's all it's just so unpredictable <laughs> you know when I wrote the book when I started writing the book the ideas for the book started in 2015 when I wrote an unpublished essay called state of emergency the production of music is out of control and a lot of ideas for the book are in that essay when I was just like there's so much music I can't I can't help my artists I can't help my students <laughs> I can't help my friend like stop making art everyone just stop let's just have a we just stop for a minute and just work out what are we doing here. A lot of the background conceptualization that's in Can Music Make You Sick started in state of emergency. And um, I think the ideas around sanity and ideas about our relationship to our mental health um, are very, very tied to our ability to express ourselves and communicate, right? So, and I think that when I started to look at what were the underlying and real disruptions caused by digital technology on top of all of this other stuff, I began to understand a kind of relationship and began, you know, come to see this kind of how these relationships get distorted. I had so many aha moments while reading the book there were so many times where I almost couldn't believe what I was reading you know like for the first time my inner dialogue or thoughts or fears or things that I'd never actually articulated before to anyone was I was reading it and it was like wow other people feel this too because there's just so much so many things we don't say to each other as musicians because as you sort of mentioned in the book there's this whole how I present myself is one reality versus what's actually going on which is why I think this is such a central reading for anyone who works in the music industry but some of the statistics were incredibly sad and heartbreaking um, this one in particular that 71.1 percent of respondents believed they had experienced incidences of anxiety and panic attacks and 68.5 percent of respondents experienced incidences of depression which suggests that musicians could be up to three times more likely to suffer from depression compared to the general public. I mean, did that surprise you, getting that information back? Yeah, totally. It totally surprised me in that, number one, I have to say that I am a statistical sceptic, right? I'm somebody that has always been very cautious that we should understand numbers and data in context, right? So I think in the first place, I was, yeah, taken aback. I mean, on one level, I wasn't neither George nor myself were surprised that people were suffering from panic attacks or anxiety or depression because my experience in the industry and my experience in my life, you know, I literally come from a family of artists. I live, all my, my partners are artists, my kids are musicians, my, all my friends, you know, that that's the world that I live in. Although my best friend is a bus driver and she was in a punk band. <laughs> she drives a bus and she is an artist, but she does die. And I have to always give her props for that because she was like, I just want a job where I get paid and I get people somewhere. <laughs> I always think it's like the best philosophy. I'm like, okay, genius. But you know, um, brilliant. She was still in a punk band and we met at art school. So it, that's difficult to say. But I think that this same thing um, of understanding, you know, I, I was really feeling that in 2015. <laughs> I was already feeling it, I think, in 2006 because I've got notes, you know, I keep notes and I write things. And even in 2006, I'm concerned about what's happening, particularly that we lost two young people in very quick succession that I knew, two young musicians who um, had taken their own lives and 
Yeah, I started to notice these kind of digital rituals of death, you know, people putting their albums up, having these memorial pages. And I was like, oh, what, what is happening here? And not to say that hasn't been an you know, experience that I've experienced loss, you know, that that is something, unfortunately, I've experienced quite a bit in my life in this sphere for various reasons, you know, from drug addiction to alcoholism to accidents that have happened. So I've always been very attuned to the damage that the industry in itself can do. I've always like been aware of that, you know, but I think that once we got to the 2000s and so much music was being made and so much music and, and you know that's the thing is then I was like what is happening to the musicians that are making this music that became really my central concern because there's so much great music like so someone sent me some music the other day and I was like god this is incredible and you know that none of this has anything to do with the quality of the music because some, some people go to me oh yeah but you know people make loads of bad music now and I'm like no, not necessarily, actually. You can't know what kind of music they make. But if you think about the people that are doing this, and also, you know, um, by the time we started the research, we both, George and myself, were really, really, you know, spend a lot of our time working in digital promotion and what you have to do and all the work you have to do. So I was very aware, deeply aware of the changing role the changing roles and jobs that musicians had to do. They weren't just making music, I mean, you know. And so in a sense, I was not surprised to find that people were reporting distress and illness in that way, but I was taken aback by the number. You know, I'm really aware that people are just working and working and working, like in a way that my experience of making things the kind of crushing impact of digital demands, you know, like the internet is such a greedy place. It's like, mm. it's like a monster that you just like open the door and and it's like, you know, you, you must feel yeah. like that when you open your inbox, you know, you open your computer and just turn it on and go, do I dare look at what I'm being asked to do today? In my history as a music manager, I have worked with artists that do not like to do press. They don't want to do press at all. You know, the artists that I was working with back in the 90s, that kind of idea then in the middle of the 2000s where I started working, I was like, it was like, oh, could you imagine? So, so all kind of things that I know about people working in this, how you work literally, how you physically work in a space, like in your studio, or are you in a rehearsal room? Are you meeting up with your friends? Or how does your band get together? Where do you practice? The digital world, it mm. impacts every single aspect of that, those things in a way that people were only saying to us was good. That was my objection, was that everyone was going, this is just great. And I was like, really? That's why it's called Can Music Make You Sick? And so many people said to me, why have you called your book that? I said, because that's a question I want to ask. It's a brilliant question. <laughs> it's such a good question. And I think one of the things that kind of really stuck out to me was the concept of the achievement expectation gap. And one of your interviewers talked about feeling completely despondent with producing work and, I quote, not getting anything back. And that is part of it. It's just feeding this abundance of music, putting content out into this seemingly endless pool of content that it's so hard to get people to ever hear of it unless you have some sort of powerful backing of some kind, which is why I think it's so interesting that UK Music used that music is a meritocracy quote, because I just completely disagree with that. They'd never use it now. <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't. I mean, that's also the thing is very, it's very, very interesting how the Black Lives Matter, Me Too, um, the pandemic have impacted what the music industry infrastructures now say really in a big way and no one would say that now like so people will appeal to that but certainly here in the UK 
people will not say that anymore because now they're very, very well aware you can't get away with saying that anymore because it clearly isn't the case. Yeah, I mean, the myth of the meritocracy that circulates in the creative industries anyway is massive. It's massive. It's absolutely huge. And it's so frustrating for artists, you know, with this whole YouTube culture and the TV shows, you know, to have family members or audience members say, oh, well, why aren't you famous? You know, Justin Bieber did YouTube and now he's famous or Ed Sheeran was a busker or this kind of rags to riches stories humans love but they're completely unrealistic. Yes. So it, I feel like it's gaslighting artists and blaming them for not being more successful without having this full understanding of, of the ecosphere, <laughs> which it's like I've described it to my family as playing the pokies, you know, or slot machines. I can feed Facebook money every single day, but still I'm not going to get my content out there. I don't have enough money to fight through, you know, to fight algorithms. So even if I put out an amazing album, the chances of anyone hearing it are so low. Yeah, well, algorithms don't pick up female voices either. So, I mean, the thing is, there's so much research now and my students have really been great in this area doing research, you know, just to prove how how gender-specific algorithms are, right? So um, if you look up the Fugees as a band on Spotify... They don't recommend Lauren Hill. Really? No, really, right? My favorite, wow. One of my favourite games is to go to a band that has a female member and then see who they recommend. It's stuff that drives you mad. Once you start to be aware mm. of it, that does drive you mad. It distresses me. I was like texting friends going, look up, look up the Fugees on Spotify to find Fugees and see if you get Lauren Hill how long it takes you to get Lauren Hill. Spotify streaming stations are are now all aware of this as well, right? So when we wrote the book, that conversation was not there because the difference between the time you write the book and it gets into print, it comes out there and the other things that take place. But it's definitely there in the tech. I mean, it's in the tech world now anyway, and it's in the streaming world. But of course, yeah, the difference between what is the reality for a professional musician or someone attempting to have a professional music career and being compared to a SoundCloud artist or to Billie Eilish, you know, like everybody gets, everybody gets Billie Eilish. I don't know how that goes down in Australia, but in, in the UK, it's like when Billie Eilish was coming up, it's like Billie Eilish, Billie Eilish. And I'm like, that's one person. Let's Can, can we drop one person? Because that's why you get yeah. that 99%. Like I'm like, stop looking at the 1% right? Move the lens. Let's start, you know, because it says a lot, you know, it does. It says a lot about how we value, which communities are valuing music, how music is produced, how musicians are repaid, what role music plays for us, you know? So, I mean, these things provoke more questions, but they are very urgent. In my opinion, they're very urgent questions. Yeah, they're really urgent questions. What's your advice for musicians, you know, for artists? How can we allow ourselves the capacity to dream big and have aspirations while also being realistic about the state of play? My recommendation for musicians particularly is to be... Nobody should stop dreaming, right? (laughs) That's it. Number one, no one should stop dreaming. I'm the worst dreamer. You should see my list of dreams and aspirations. My bucket list changes the whole time. I'm like, oh, just add that. You know, I need to kind of, you know, we shouldn't stop dreaming. It's how we dream. What what does our dream look like, right? Our dream of our own singular success. So, like, my thing is always to look for community, to look for people who can help sustain you just I don't mean sustain solely in economic terms and I think that you know the real thing that needs to be really understood now and I think I'm not I'm not saying that it isn't I think nowadays people are really beginning to understand it that the shift of if there ever was such a thing even if it was for a very short amount of time this idea that there was a kind of singular economic value to music that came from the exchange of CDs, right? That's just gone and it's never coming back, right? And those are the kind of things people go, yeah, that's great because you can sell some tote bags and have some T-shirts. And I'm like, no, you know, like how many tote bags can can we have? Like 
I have, you know, I have a real tote bag. I'm a tote bag hater right now. Um, but that kind of thing is like building community in which you, which you can perform. You can, I think that's very important because it, even within your dream, within the dream, so, you know, we, we've seen like very successful examples of this in London recently to the extent that we have a, we have a new jazz explosion in London that was all formed around a group of people coming together in a particular space. And it's been, you know, people are supporting each other that really, and, and out of that, there are some successful mm -hmm. musicians because they won't all be successful because the nature of any kind of marketplace is that we can't have a hundred winners, right? So, so that has to be, but how that, how music enriches our lives and enriches the lives of people who have invested their lives in doing this all the time. You know, you can't measure the investment people make in making these careers, right? It's 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 really hard to measure. Um, but you can say, well, you know, when it gets people talk about a sacrifice, you know, they say, oh, the sacrifices I've made to be a musician. Um, you know, because it's a calling. Mm. It's a calling. Yes, I wanted to ask you about that because there was a line in the book from one of the musicians yeah. you spoke to who said, music is me. And to quote the book, it says, musicians define themselves through the prism of yeah. their musical work and defines who they are as human beings. Musicians say that, you know, that's uh, we're just reporting back what they say. For the people that we spoke to, that was what they all said. You know, I mean, there's somebody that we speak to that's in the book who's an amazing musician, incredible musician who's played all over the world. Um, and he talks about his marriage. I mean, he just talks about like what's happened in his life. And when I when I was interviewing him, which was, it was a really long interview, I spoke like really long time with him. We were crying with laughter. I mean, he was so funny. But what he was telling me was the most tragic, heartbreaking. You know, he practically couldn't walk because of his back injury. Um, I mean, all this stuff. But it was just like, oh. But at the same time, he's playing at the most elite music venues around the world. And then he's going from there to, like, you know, practically Skid Row in 24 hours. It was it was like a roller coaster of a conversation, but at the same time he he was just like, well, yeah, I wouldn't give this up. And it it was just incredible. It was just like, what what are you saying? You, you have you looked behind you? There's an absolute car. You know, there's so many things. And he goes, I know it's terrible. Like, yeah, it was very poignant conversation because really, as a mu musician, this person is recognised internationally in his field absolutely as one of the top people but also working in an area of music that isn't going to be you know it's not Adele it's not going to be you know the biggest selling but it's significant area of music for culture for for communities for understanding you know like and it's like okay so we have to find ways which includes putting pressure on our political system it includes changing the way money is distributed in our society mm. in order to recognize and attribute value to the thing that gives humans value what what does it mean to for humans to flourish well one of these things is to have flourishing cultural life you know and 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 culture is made by people and those people can't be starving and they can't be on their knees and they can't be sacrificing. You know, it's so it's so uh, heroic, isn't it? It's like the Roman sacrifice. We're throwing them to the lions. I'm like, what are you talking about? These are just people making music. We don't have to throw them to lions. We don't have to. Yes, yeah, so the extremity of it. There, there is a lot of. You know, I've got, I mean, I've got friends who completely disagree with me and they're like, oh, that's what it's about. That's where it all comes from. And I, just, <laughs> I don't know. Do you feel like you got any closer to understanding why musicians have that insatiable drive to make music even through these precarious conditions and where this 
sense or feeling of a calling comes from? Do you feel like you got a bit closer to capturing that? Yes, actually, I do in some senses. I think, and I think there's a long way to go with that question, can music make you sick? Because entangling, you know, part of what we did was by listening to musicians, heard what they were saying about what made them sick, right? So they continually, 100% said, making music feels good. Making music is what sustains them, right? Because they're very, very, you know, you could say if you were talking in a kind of, or in a kind of addict way, that like, that's, that's the thing, but it isn't, you know, it is a drug in one sense, but it's not a drug in the negative sense. Like it's not, you know, it's not opium. It's not, but I think it's uncomfortable where that is, but they, they were very rooted and making music gives them meaning. It gives meaning to their lives. And I think that in one way we have to really, you know, mm. con- humans as conscious beings make meaning that's what they do. They're meaning-making machines. Music is an incredible... Um, I, I always say it's the most useful expressive art. It doesn't necessarily rely on language. It doesn't necessarily rely on years of study. It doesn't... You know, you can sing and clap and you can stomp your feet and you can... It connects with very primal things and we can understand and hear and see in this where mm. our religious, just as I was saying about magic, you know, um, yesterday evening I was trying to describe to my friend, imagine my father was a photographer who died many years ago, but try to tell him, I was like, can you imagine I phoned him up now from an iPhone and tried to describe to him what I was doing, you know, or send him a film that my son had made on an iPhone it was really, really hard to do that, right? It would really, it would blow it, like when people say it would blow your mind. So this kind of thing about how, you know, like even a hundred years ago, people were so religious. They're so much mm. more religious than they are now. They've got secularism, secularization of humanity is also a very, very, very new thing, right? And so, you know, I'm a secular person. I'm not, but I am very... I very much enjoy rituals. I very much enjoy rituals of family gatherings, of get friends together. I enjoy understanding rituals, my history and my roots and those things. But I have a a profound problem. Yeah, I'm, I'm less convinced about the presence of gods of any kind, right? But I totally, totally get our, that kind of human thing about magic. You know, just the thing where something happens and you're like, oh, it's like magic because it's not explainable. For me, and if we're talking mm. to musicians and the things that they say, I think there's a big thing that connects them, like this belief thing and the, the magic of it and the things, that, the unknownness, you know, like things we cannot know and things we cannot find a way of saying we can't find words for. Music as a, as a utility provides access to that does that make sense yeah it does I was getting that from people all the time whether they're rappers whether they're uh, Mm -hmm. musicians that you know that thing like channeling emotion like you know that's about emotional labor like doing work in societies that have become increasingly cerebral we can see that we can see that anyway in in all the kind of things that you can't cut the mind off the body you've got to have a relationship to it you can't deny it and you know in terms of sexual I mean there's so many things that this intersects and I think music is so central to those it's you know music is central to uh, rituals of sexuality you know dancing getting close to people touching people you know mm-hmm. there you know you wouldn't take a you know a painting out of a gallery and go oh I'd like to hook up with you because I've seen this painting. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But you'll hear a piece of music and you'll be like, oh, I might. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, music marks all these major moments in our life. Yeah. Our birthday, there's a song. We walk down the aisle, we marry someone. The music curation for those events is so important. The graduation yeah. song yeah. or the footy anthem, you know, we don't kind of hold up paintings yeah. or yeah. sculptures yay, here's your birthday, everyone raised the sculpture. Yeah. It just, 
has such an incredibly human thing that is really hard to describe. And I do love that in the book that talking about music almost like an addiction and a sort of gambling thing, especially when it comes to the financial contribution that artists make, because I know myself, the financial investment that I've made in making records that, you know, don't recoup or you know maybe almost recoup and you kind of justify well I do the gigs and I wouldn't have got the gigs without the album and but really it feels like some sort of gambling and it makes no rational sense to spend this kind of money but oh it's an investment and it's like but is it (laughs) or is it just addicted to making records the book has such an intersectional view of the industry and talks about how status, class divides, gender, race and power plays in the music ecosystem. And you also touch on the sexualization of women in the music industry, which I know is an area that you've looked at before. Can you talk a little bit about your findings around body image for women in terms of the pressure of sexualizing their look as an artist and how that might impact their mental health and feelings of self-worth as an artist? Yeah, okay. Well, firstly, I think one of the the important things about our research is that we didn't ask that question. Women brought that up. We our our interviews were very open. We asked women to bring things up because that was you know what what I would say to everybody is that every woman I meant I we interviewed mentioned age really quickly, very quickly, first few few minutes or minute, first 60 seconds, the age question came in. And it was like, it was almost like, um, you know, each woman had a barcode and they were just showing me their barcode. Like, you know, that is always very telling because that's not to say that men didn't also mention age and time. Women talked about time and time was connected to their body and their bodies and how their body shape developed over time. They were so embedded in each other and then, you know, one of the women talked about being measured by her management company every week. I mean, that was horrific. When that, that yeah, was I, just, that. I mean, I was just like so upset. But women that I know that do modeling also tell me that's really common. And they, you know, being weighed. And, you know, my mum's really into sports. She goes, well, boxers have to be weighed. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so that kind of element, but the way in which, women spoke about it was always as a pressure was all you know no one said oh I really like being weighed or you know what I mean it wasn't like um you know when you think about the idea of consent or you know people say to me oh yeah but you know women can modify themselves or the kind of stuff that all of which that, that kind of binary I think just think is just not helpful mm-hmm. way because, oh no they feel empowered when they're seminating yes yes you know what is happening in this field is very, very complex. And, it, you know, it's like you can't imagine what would the world be like if this wasn't what the world is like, you know, because we, we don't know because this is what it's like and you're in a very image-based industry. So there was a, yeah, literally wasn't a single person that identified as female that didn't talk about image and what they had to do for their image and how they had to look and how, how, you know, so many um, reported eating disorders or having, you know, just so many, you know, from the classical music people to the rock people. There wasn't anyone that we walked to that said, oh, I'm really happy about my body and it doesn't bother me. That <laughs> just wasn't the case, right? So it's such a, a huge such a huge area that I have to negotiate whilst also wanting to make music. Mm -hmm. What was really evident was that although, you know, the male musicians were also concerned about image or they were certainly concerned about ageing, none of them talked about that as being a problem, but all the women did. And that that makes a huge difference. It's like saying, you know, we're all going to work in an office tomorrow And we're all going to come to the office, but for half of you, you're going to spend two hours being anxious about what you're going to look like in the office and the other half you can just turn up. And the half that are going to come into work feeling anxious also have to spend an additional two hours in hair and makeup first. Yes, yes, at least, yeah. Yeah, at least. A lot of my singer girlfriends in particular 
you know, it's not just the regular hair and nail appointments because it's also fillers or Botox or, you know, procedures that they've done, that kind of additional pressure. And I think, and something you talk about in the book also is the Mm. additional pressure on artists in terms of being content makers in social media and constant digital world. I remember when I first started singing, you know, 20 years ago, I'd have a couple of gig outfits that I'd wear on repeat. I would just wear the same dress again and again and again. And now there's this pressure of you need a new outfit every time because it's going to be on Instagram. Yes. You know, and these additional things that kind of have nothing to do with music but are now. Yeah. And and then that gets used within the industry to buy in, you know, A&R community and with managers are like, oh, it's so difficult to manage women artists. It's so expensive. We have to do so much more work. Right. That's another, that, that then becomes a thing. It is a thing. And it gets said, it's not, it's not even, a, it is a thing, you know, and you, you have to do the styling. You have to have the stylist. You have to wow. do And um, that's incredible. Cause you know, that USC Annenberg report that came out, was it last year now where they looked at, you know, the 500 songs and we're talking about how less than 2% of producers identify as female, that report, you know, there was something in there as well about something like 1,200 artists signed to labels, only about 300 of them identify as female. I mean, is that part of that A&R decision? Oh, yeah. A&R people have said in the press that, you know, signing female artists and breaking female artists is, is more expensive. Actually, they're right in saying that because the way in which they do it is more expensive because that's the system they've decided that's the only system that's, you know, if you, I mean, if you work close up, I've never managed pop artists. That's not, that wasn't the area of music that I work in, but I have close friends that that have done that, right? Really like work with the Spice Girls. And when they come back and tell me like what their days were and, and, you know, we just discuss what goes into that. You know, friends of mine that are senior digital, you know, marketing managers at major labels working with the top artists, female artists, you just dust the schedule of what you need to make the content for their day. I mean, put if you were to put that in practice, it like scale that down. That's an mm. army of people making content to look like they're just having a normal day. There's a team doing that, that content creating. There's teams planning the content they want the artist to make so that they will then post it for them mm. so it will look like them posting. Right? It's exhausting. And then when you put out a record, the media, and I understand that media is a whole other story and that, you know, paying journalists or music press, you know, and that that's a whole other story of people not being paid and all that sort of stuff. And I understand that. But there used to be a culture of music reviews. And now as an artist, when you put out a record, there's not as many reviews. It's you're being asked to write something. Can you write a list of your top 10 favorite books of all time with a paragraph on each one? Can you write? And I'm thinking, I'm not writing articles for all these publications. I don't have time for this. But I've got to do it because it's the only way I'll get my face and name mentioned. Yeah, and that's what I mean. The, 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 absolutely, the the internet is a crazy, crazy, greedy monster, and social media and Instagram and all of those things. So when you're now very successful, you can come off that. Yes, Ed Sheeran can come off it. Billie Eilish can come off it. Beyonce. No, never put the comment on Instagram. It's just pictures, pictures, okay. pictures. Yeah, yeah. Everyone, yeah, I'm coming off it. I'm. Co- it's too stressful. I'm coming. So big artists can come off it. And also by coming off it, they they create a scarcity of their content. So when they come back, there's a big media storm. Um, and that, you know, that's why you have to look at the patterns that these formats create in terms of, you know, we use a concept by a political media theorist, Jody Dean, communicative capitalism, which shows how these media storms accumulate data, which makes money for, uh, you know, that's the thing that's happening is that in the music production field where we talk about musical subjects, they are all the people that are involved in making music in one way or another. Concentrate on this idea that, you know, that everyone knows now that you can make money from other places 
But what's underlying that is where the real money is really being made is from the other places. So from data, from tech, from the buying of equipment, you know, not from the actual music. The economics has shifted to this other place. And lots of musicians don't understand that. They really don't understand it or they can't yes. they can't quite grasp that actually. So for someone like Beyonce no. or Adele or someone else not to be on the internet for a year and then come back on and have that massive storm that creates all kinds of data that can be sold, all kinds of advertising opportunity, because that's, that is managing the supply and demand deficit that we have lost in the digital formats and different digital social media got rid of supply and demand supply and demand just disappeared right so you've got to then recreate as you always have done in a sense that's always been a case in markets but you have to manage and recreate scarcity and you recreate scarcity in big artists by them withdrawing from social media it's just wild the whole thing but is this is what's happening i know it is just what's happening but it, it's so mega because before it would have happened in a territorial place like you know, you would have, you could have had a hit in Australia. It's a place, it's a contained island, it's a hugely big, so it has its own problems, but you can have a hit there, right? But once you're on international globalized formats, you're out there, it doesn't matter where you are. So when people go to you, it's brilliant, it doesn't matter where you are. It's like, no, you really missed the point. You've just dropped me in the biggest ocean ever. And now it really matters because. I can't accumulate, you know, like, you know, that they, they used to be this kind of... That's right. You can't build an audience yes, here and exactly. then tour and build an audience there and yes. stagger it out, yes, you so know, that... have a sort of plan, test the waters here. You know, they yeah. used to have different formats with records. You do singles in your own territory and then you put out a second album and then maybe you'd release a record in Japan that had tracks from album one and two, the things that you thought would best exactly. work over there and... That's all sort of gone. Yeah, exactly. And now it's about, you know, we had someone in class last week. I wasn't actually there to hear him, but after class, several people called me and say, oh, my God, he said this. And uh, and he's a great guy. He's a lovely guy. Came in, but he was saying you need a million pieces of content up before you can expect to make any money on uh, out of the new formats. You need to create a million pieces of content. And he said that to him. So that's one a day for how many days? Yeah. <laughs> a million, right? So, um, and so it was like, it, you know, my students were like, you, I know you weren't in the lecture today, but he came in and he, this is what you said. And he's working like, he, you know, he's a, he's a, obviously he works in digital distribution. So he does want to produce a lot of digital stuff. But at the same time, he's very knowledgeable. He's a very um, knowledgeable person. So he's coming in you know, saying this kind of thing. And of course, all of that creation enables profit in other areas, but not profit in music. It uses your time, you will buy equipment, you will, do you see what I mean? You will use electricity, you'll do all those things, you'll make data, but you won't make money out of music. And this is, this is mm. the kind of shift that's happening. And when you're living in that shift, it's very awkward because, you know, you and I can imagine, you know, what would happen in 50 years time is that this may be spoken about as, you know, it, 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 there's nothing, there's no doubt that the past 20 years and particularly in the past three to four years, there's been massive shifts in global thinking, localized global thinking. There's been just huge shift. There's a lot, a lot, a lot going on now. And that's not, that's not merely Putin behaving like a mod, but you know, behind that is also an energy crisis, right? And also behind that is a restructuring of Europe and everything is embedded in the real world, you know, in the material world. But there is also this real drive that has been fueled by um, certain ideological practices that we should all be spending more time being creative. And, you know, and of course we should, because as uh, there's a really great guy in America, Jonathan Stein, who says that creativity is the new passivity. So making all this stuff is like, like when people used to complain that kids watch TV, they just sat there and watch TV. 
instead of sitting watching TV, now you're on your phone making stuff. You're making it, making it, right? And so that keeps you occupied. Actually, while you're occupied, other shit's going on and you're not seeing mm. what's going on. So when you were asking me earlier, what is what advice do I have? And I don't want to be a, like a soothsayer and an advice giver because I think my job is to ask the questions and hear what people are saying. That's a real, real thing for me is like, I, I feel like a reporter in a way, like I'm reporting back. I'm in the field. I was in the field and I observed that people were falling. Shit was going on and I needed to report back. You know, when I felt like I was in a state of emergency, I was like, really mm -hmm. need to, somebody needs to listen. You know, it's like that kind of, there's something going on here. Yes. And it was absolutely. So and I feel incredibly grateful. Well, I feel incredibly grateful for all the musicians that have continued to work in this unbelievably unsustained, you know what I mean? It's like it's a kind of thing that we feed each other. And I'm I'm grateful for the people. I'm so grateful for the people, you know, because when I, I, I really have had some people, you know, um, like go, yeah, but music doesn't make you sick. Like, and it just like, and I'm like, really? But I, do, I actually don't know that. I actually, you know, I actually have seen people not leave their studio like even when they tell me they're feeling good about making it I'm like maybe you've stopped understanding what feeling good is you know because you're so focused you know what I mean your drive is so there and, you're, and, and as you said right in the beginning musicians are made to feel they are responsible for their success or failure mm -hmm. singular it's that singular like I didn't do it you know how am I going to tell my parents how do I tell my partner uh, you know and that is something that you, that would be my advice is like, look around, start to understand what is going on and don't singularly take responsibility. I mean, I know we need to be responsible. Right? I totally know we all need to be responsible. It'd be great if we everyone woke up tomorrow as a highly responsible individual, right? That would be amazing. Highly unlikely to happen. And in some senses, as you said, we're dreaming dreaming and the space for dreaming which is hugely important for us right in a psychological sense now you know there's a lot of evidence that dreaming is part of the way that we make meaning and we make memories and understanding so dreaming in our actual lives of having dreams it, it has to be important to people like it's, it's fundamentally very a very important act of dreaming it's part of human, humans are curious, aren't they? Like, I want to go there. I want to find out what's up the road. And why do they play those beats like that? Or why do they sing like that? Or pleasure is so denied to us, you know, like we're so, we're so denied pleasure, but really music is a place of pleasure. A lot of those places are forbidden places to us, aren't they? So the people that have chosen to be musicians actually know the secret of pleasure. Like that's one thing that I think they know is like, mm, this is nice. I'm going to do the nice thing. Like, and they know it, you know, they kind of know it in a way that is, uh, is the unspoken. Yeah. It's kind of the unspoken, but I always think people take time, even though it's incredibly hard, try not to think of the competition, try to be in that, the zone that where you do get pleasure, give yourself time. Time has become the thing of which we are most scarce, you know, in which we are most afraid of losing in a way and all these things. And so kind of taking back those things and also creating, you know, rhythms back in our life. You know, music's a lot about rhythm. And I think it's important to have rhythms. But, you know, one of my students said, uh, who's also a musician, really great musician, and a very wise young person. He just said to me one day, he said, but you know, life comes in seasons, Sally. And I just loved that. And I was like, oh yeah, right. Mm -hmm. I think it's so nice, isn't it? Like when you think about it, it's like, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's beautiful. So maybe when you're young, teenage years, that's your hot summer, you know, you're trying to get, you're doing all those things, you know, but as, as we start, as you know, as we go through life, things change and we change and we, we experience it in that kind of seasonal way um it's a good way to think about it you know you can't always have summer like you can't always you know you shouldn't always always be in the winter you know what I mean like you've got to have those changing seasons so I know everybody loves to ask you what are the next steps and I love that 
Can music make you sick? It's thought-provoking. It's asking questions. It's not a handbook of solving the mental health crisis in the creative sectors. However, I think it's really important that we do kind of, you know, look at, well, what are the responsibilities of all of those organizations and people in the broader ecosphere? And what are those responsibilities? And what do you think musicians can do for each other to also take responsibility and take some of that, I don't know, I, I'm loath to use the word power, but it's almost like, well, if all the musicians went on strike, which they're not going to do, but, you know, how do we ensure that we can take care of ourselves? Number one, I would say to that question, the musicians aren't going to go on strike. They're not going to go on strike, but they have just been in a very bad situation in which we have seen, certainly in the UK, I'm not sure exactly what happened in Australia, but in the UK, we really have seen musicians speak up, take action, join, and, and the union, Musicians Union, we've seen a lot of activity here that was impressive and hope-making. We have seen that. So that's something that I, you know, for a long time, I never thought we'd I would witness again, certainly not in the creative sphere, but we have done. So I'm very, I feel very positive about that because that really has made uh, an impact and I, it won't go away. It's really changed, changed the mindset, you know. So that I think has been really good. Uh, um, certainly here in the UK, all the music companies are taking mental health seriously and they all have mental health first aiders and mental health workshops. I mean, mental health in the music agenda has moved right up there to, you know, one of the top topics. And people are, um, there are a whole, a whole array of initiatives. I think that that's really good. What mu musicians themselves can do is, you know, um, continue to support each other. Because actually, I think musicians do support each other. I think now the conversation, I've seen some really interesting, we have an initiative here called calm which is directed at men living better you know and so this just opening up these conversations making sure that you check in on each other and i don't in any way think that the taboo around mental health is over right I, please i don't think that at all but i think that the level of discussion now is much better than it was right and i think that's important my university did not want me to do this research. They didn't want me to ask that question. I work in a completely male environment at the university, in the music department, pretty much. And I was the only woman manager, of course. And right from the beginning, when I said I was doing this, they were like, what? And I really got a lot of resistance, not a little bit of resistance. I got told not that I couldn't do it. I'm not a researcher. I mean, I've been told by the university that I'm not a researcher. So many times I've got it, you know, I've got it in writing, I've got it on tape. Um, yeah, it's so distressing. And then I knew the more people say that, you know that you're not going to stop. Do you know what I mean? You're like, not stopping now you said that. Because so I think that that's really shifted because now everyone's like, oh, it's great you're doing that work. It's fantastic. Well done. <laughs> and it's like, you know, when you make a record that's really difficult and like people are like, you know why why have you done that record's really not not commercial and you're like okay but wow let's go have a go you know so you can't always you know that obviously we need we need an investment a real investment in mental health in therapies in in support we need a real shift in on you know one of the things that i'm really delighted about is that in ireland they are now piloting uh, universal basic income for musicians right so I'm like so pleased about I'm just like mm. great and all of these things are incredible it's really interesting how when the pandemic hit I honestly thought oh our book's going to the bottom of the river <laughs> I was just like okay no one's gonna read this book now it was so funny but weirdly it was like it amplified what we were saying in the book you know, it's like what we were saying in the book is like times 10 because the pandemic was just like, could it get any worse, right? I'm so glad it came out when it did because you can't, you know, if it came out now to be like, oh, well, that's <laughs> just because of the pandemic. Whereas the fact that you did that research when you did it yeah. 
shows that it's not you can't just blame the pandemic oh, yeah. for so all much, the flaws yeah. in the music industry no. a majorly flawed ecosystem before this <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so yeah so i think you know we just you know we have to recognize that you know in some ways although this isn't like a pro-religious thing but i do think that i do think that the lack of rituals in our lives the lack of space time the 24 seven working conditions, all of these zero hour contracts, mm -hmm. all of these things that really, you know, hyper capitalism or people neoliberal capitalism has really brought to the fore were always there existent in the life of musicians. Musicians lives have a lot to tell us about what the good life could be. And I've always thought that, you know, because music provides one of the most that's why i say the most useful ingredient to making our lives survivable right and good right so if these people are doing that work which is extremely important because we need it how can we treat them so badly like where where's the payoff there like what's that about right and i think this new thing certainly here so you know i would say that france i would say that there are countries that have had a much more um progressive attitude to the importance of culture and music and, and we've been really bad you know america uk we've been really bad and it's also mm. very classist you know so i mean there's so many things wrong with it but in, in so many levels right but um you know we, we were like another thing that we were doing the other day with our students we were like trying to imagine what post-Brexit music was. <laughs> we were like, what is that music? What will be the sound of this, you know, this kind of little Britain with closed gates and, you know, and just no one had a clue. Like the kids were just like, and, and you rely, you know, like I rely on them to feed me mm -hmm. the future because, you know, they are much more in touch with it. You know, I, I never... I see my students as a massive resource for my learning capacity. Oh, absolutely. That's why, you know, I love doing mentoring because I feel like, well, I'm getting just as much back from my mentee and everybody should mentor. Yeah. And, you know, some some girlfriends of mine who have been in the industry for decades have said, oh, no, I couldn't be a mentor. I don't, I don't know enough. And I'm just like, you need to spend some time with some 18, 19-year-olds because you will soon realise that. How much you've done that you can pass on you know, <laughs> you know it's the whole idea of i'm not worthy you know i haven't got enough yeah. special you know information to pass on it's like no your real life touring expertise is so valuable to someone who's never to it yes that gender thing of you know imposter syndrome of not thinking you're good at you know i mean it's a lot it's a lot to deal with but oh. mentoring supporting you know creating community the recognize the importance of community, rejecting this idea, just rejecting this idea that we are singularly against the world, you know, just actually recognizing the importance of our social lives and our social beings and, and that our welfare is invested in the welfare of others. If, you know, if other people are suffering, we will eventually be suffering and being more open, being more giving, you will get back and you do get back. You always get back right? in just remember everything changes. And I'm always saying that to my students when they're really anxious and they're really, which they are now justifiably. I just say that, you know, actually some amazing things have happened in my lifetime that I could not believe would happen. So, and, you know, that's a thing that's always worth kind of reminding them, you know. I loved what you were saying about the ritual part of music and I, it made me think of the book Religion for Atheists by Alan de Botton. I don't know if you've read that book, but it's all about that. And I think that that is, you know, has a similar kind of concept. It's the communal experience. And when I think about stadium shows and sitting in a stadium with 10,000 yeah. other people to watch a band and I can hardly hear the music because of the screaming, you're really not there to listen to the music because if you were a purist there for the music, you'd listen to the CD at home. You're there for the experience of enjoying that music with 10,000 others that feel the same way about that music as you do. Absolutely. And that experience that we missed out on during the pandemic was so hugely felt. So I do hope that some of the positive things 
you know, if any, but if there's some positives that can be taken away from this time, it's for people to remember that feeling, to miss that feeling, maybe value music a little bit more and at least more awareness around mental health. As I was saying before, I am so incredibly grateful that you've done this work against all odds because I feel like it is so important that musicians' voices are heard and I feel like there's so much literature and work that's done about looking at the economics of music that's breaking down how our brain responds to music. There's heaps of work on neuroscience and music, but there there hasn't been anything like this and it's so important and so I want to say a huge thank you. Thank you. And thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I could honestly talk to you all day. (laughs) Thank you. Well, it was super lovely. Thank you for inviting me. This is the wonderful thing about the internet, that we can have these conversations. So on the plus side, there is something, you know, we do want to communicate with each other. Music is such a central part of our important conversations. You've been listening to Control with Chelsea Wilson and my special guest, Sally Ann Gross. For more info, please check the links in the show notes. Please subscribe to Control on your preferred podcast platform. And if you have a moment, please rate and leave a review. It helps other people find the podcast. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung. And I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and all First Nations peoples. Until next time, Chelsea Wilson signing off. I-